I'm glad you got to hear that report in Spanish um, this morning. I've had the opportunity to uh, be in Peru on a couple of different trips, and the church there uh, always reminds me that the language of heaven will be Spanish, so you need to get used to it. Well, after 13 weeks in the life of Joseph, you may say, I got this. I, I understand it now. Joseph lived a miserable life through no fault of his own for a very long time, just like me. Unjustly treated, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, wrongly imprisoned, egregiously forgotten, just like me. In fact, I, I, I went out, bought a new keychain or a new necklace, new medallion or a, a little statue from the front of my yard because he's my new patron saint. The saint of life really stinks. But good news, after years of misery, Joseph was remembered, promoted, and reunited to his doting father and his repentant brothers. And this is the really cool part. He even saw good in all of it. As for you, you miserable, no good, terribly rotten brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. But I, I, I get it now. Bad things happen to good people, all according to the sovereign control of a good and benevolent God. Everything happens for a purpose. He has my best in mind. This is really good news. So, so now, when bad things happen to me, I just have to suck it up. I need to just shut up and take it like a man. Put on my big girl panties. Now, I know life is hard. Then you die. But, but, but better things await. So just slog it out until then. And some of us treat the Christian life just that way. We worship a God who makes life or at least allows life to be miserable. And while we may not know why, he does. So just buck up. Is it any wonder why people look at the lives of miserable, down on their luck, down in the mouth Christians and say, you can have it. Who wants that? Uh, my life of self-centered sin is a whole lot more fun. We spent three months talking about how God is in control of everything in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. No matter what you're going through, what you have faced, or what you will face, God has not forgotten you. He is making all things work together for good for those who love God. While all things are not good, all things are for our good. So, as followers of Jesus, how do we respond when things aren't good. You know, when things are, are rotten, for our good, <laughs> but, but, but painful, do we just grin and bear it? Or does God have something altogether different in mind? As many of you know, we are studying through the New Testament together. I know it's taking a lot longer than the actual events. In fact, at this point, we are studying the, the letters of Paul in the order that he wrote them. We find ourselves in the midst of the so-called prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We, we finished 
Ephesians earlier this summer, Lynn launched into that study, the life of, of Joseph, which brings us this morning to Philippians. But, but, but why are they called the prison epistles? Let me take a little time to review this morning. It's going to feel a little bit more like a, a classroom than a sermon. Just suck it up. Many of you remember the way that the New Testament is, is set up. It starts with four Gospels. That is four different books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, which tell the story of the life of Jesus. They're called Gospels because the life of Jesus brought us good news. And while there are a lot of similarities in those books, they each tell the story from a different vantage point and are written to different audiences. Now, each gospel ends with the, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the way we'll end this morning. And in a couple of those gospels, we read about His return to heaven. We call it the Ascension. Well, next comes the, the book of Acts. Acts starts with Jesus returned to heaven, then tells the history of the foundation of the church, how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and how it's making its way all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, now, now don't miss that. We are actually part of the book of Acts. There's actually a network out there called the Acts 29 network, and you go, but but there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Right. We're Acts 29. You see, we, we live halfway around the world from the Middle East and in, in Israel where all of this took place, where Jesus grew up, you know, 2,000 years ago. And yet his story has not died. The good news has spread miraculously, and churches can be found in over half of the countries of the world and followers of Jesus Christ in most of the countries, just like Jesus said. He's building His church around the world. His gospel is being preached to more and more people, and He said it would be so, preached to every people group, and then the end will come. We're in the book of Acts, back to the book. The, the, the church spread throughout Jerusalem and, and Judea. Now, it's interesting. Jesus had told these first disciples that it would spread th throughout the world, but they became quite content with their success in Jerusalem and its surroundings. So God gave them a little gift called persecution in Acts 7 and 8. Why? To, to spread the gospel. You know that you know the gospel in part because of persecution of brothers and sisters a couple of thousand years ago. Huh. Seems to me like God was causing all things to work together for, for our good. As a result of that persecution, believers were scattered uh, outside of Jerusalem and, and, and Judea. Well, the persecutors decided to follow those early Christians. One of them was a guy named Saul. He was quite zealous for Judaism, quite opposed to this new sect that had arisen within Judaism, claiming that, of all things, that Jesus of Nazareth was the, the long-awaited Messiah, even though he had been crucified. His followers uh, believed that he had been raised from the dead. Eradicating them proved to be rather difficult. 
So, so Saul got approval from the Jewish ruling body, we call that the Sanhedrin, to go after these Jewish Christians wherever they were scattered, wherever they could be found. He, 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 he would arrest them. He would drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial before the Sanhedrin. And when the vote was cast, he would vote a guilty verdict, which often led to death. But something very unusual happened in Acts chapter 9. Saul was on his way to Damascus with those letters of authority to to arrest some more Christians. All of a sudden, a bright light appeared, knocked him to the ground, blinded him, and a voice asked, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, well, who are you? And he said, the voice said, I am Jesus. Saul, as you can imagine, this former persecutor of the church, became a follower of Jesus Christ. He became known by his Roman name, Paul. God called him to be an apostle, that is a leader in the church and and, and a missionary. In fact, he took three missionary journeys throughout the rest of the book of Acts, preaching the gospel and planting the church wherever he went. On, On his first missionary journey, about 46 A.D., he started some, some churches throughout Asia Minor. That's, that's modern-day Turkey. In fact, later he would write them a letter that we have in our Bibles known as the book of Galatians, first, first letter that we have that he wrote. On his second missionary journey, about 49 A.D., he was, he was planning a certain route that would take him throughout Asia Minor, throughout Turkey again, but the, but the Holy Spirit said no. I want you to go somewhere else. You see, God wanted him to cross the Aegean Sea and to travel to northern Greece, where the gospel would be planted in Europe for the very first time. The first place he preached the gospel in Europe was in a city called Philippi. It's in a Roman province of Macedonia. Now, Philippi was an important city. It was a Roman colony situated on a major east-west route. It was actually a military road that was, had recently been built called the Ignatian Way. It, it connected Italy with, with, with Asia. It, Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedon. L- later, it was taken over by the Romans and became a Actually, we kind of became a retirement community, kind of a blowing rock of Macedonia for the, for the Roman soldiers and, and their families. Citizens of, of Philippi were considered Roman citizens. They actually spoke Latin there. It was a religiously eclectic city. Having been a former Greek city, there were worshipers of the Greek pantheon of gods. Then it became a Roman colony, so they added the Roman gods to their list. Most prominent of those those Roman gods was the emperor cult. That is, they worshiped the emperor as God. At this time, when, when Paul started the church, the Roman emperor was a guy named Claudius. Later, when he wrote Philippians... There's a guy by the name of Nero. Uh, Not only were there Greek and Roman gods, there's evidence that they even worshipped Egyptian gods, like 140 of them. In fact, Isis was the chief deity. She was named as the patron god uh, of the city. Philippi was a religious melting pot. So when Paul traveled there, 
he and, and Silas and Timothy and, and Luke, his traveling companions, planted the church. Well, this is the way it happened. There, were, there weren't enough Jews there to, to have a synagogue. It took 10 Jewish men before a synagogue could be established. But, but there was a small group of, of, of Jews, really Jewish women, and, and God-fearers, those who had confer, converted to Judaism, who would meet on the Sabbath near the Ganges River. You can read about this, by the way, in Acts chapter 16. So Paul went there and preached the gospel. Now, now get this. And the first convert of Europe was a lady named Lydia. She was from Thyatira in Asia Minor, you know, Turkey. And she was a wealthy businesswoman who sold purple cloth. She and her household were, were baptized as believers, and, and the church of Philippi was established in her home. Well, soon after Paul's arrival, he's preaching, and this, this slave girl who was possessed by a demon began following them and causing all kinds of commotion, distracting from their work. So Paul became quite annoyed with this, and he just cast the demon out of her. The, the slave girl's owners were quite upset with this because they, they used her as a fortune teller to make money. So they drugged Paul and Silas before the, the magistrates, the authorities in, in Philippi. They accused them, and I get this, they accused them of teaching things that were not lawful for Roman citizens to accept. They were Roman citizens. And I imagine that had something to do with their preaching that the Jewish God, uh, the God of the Bible, was the only true and living God, with Jesus, His Son, being the Messiah. This, this, of course, would, would, would have denied not only their worship of all of those Roman and Greek and Egyptian gods, but it would have denied the worship of the emperor. Roman citizens, you see, can't do that. So Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was, was to guard them, so, so, so he put them in the inner prison and, and put their feet in stocks. You're probably familiar with this part of the story. Paul and Silas were, were singing hymns in the middle of the night. Now, now, now wait a minute. That, that's amazing. They, 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 were, they were being beaten, and they had been beaten. They were thrown into prison in stocks, and they were praying. Something like, God, get me out of this mess, I'm sure. And they were singing hymns. Probably, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. See, this doesn't look quite right to us. It doesn't sound like they're bucking up. It, it seems a little bit more. It doesn't sound like they're saying, hey, I'm a Christian, woe is me. We have to put up with all kinds of evil treatment. Our patron, St. Joseph, was in jail. I didn't deserve it. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Well, God apparently liked their praying and their singing because he caused an earthquake. And all the prison doors flew open. The Philippian jailer, he's quite concerned. He starts to commit suicide. Uh, Paul says, hey, wait just a minute. He preaches the gospel to him. He becomes a, a follower of Christ, and he and his family were baptized. And I am quite convinced we're at the church in Lydia's home the next Sunday. The next morning, those Philippian authorities, those magistrates, decided, yeah, we've got to let those yahoos go, let Paul and, Paul and Silas go. So they sent word to release them, but Paul sent word back, uh, no. You beat us without due process. And you should probably know something. We're Roman citizens. 
This was a big problem. This, what the magistrates had done was against the law. They could be in big trouble. Long story short, they came and apologized to them, begged for them to leave the city. Paul said, fine, we will. After they visited the church in Lydia's home, they made their way to Thessalonica to start another church. Now, I want you to think right now of the composition of this church in Philippi. Just the way it was supposed to be. At this point, we know that it was made up of a wealthy Gentile woman from Asia Minor, her household. A Philippian jailer who was most likely a former Roman soldier and his family, and perhaps a formerly demon-possessed slave girl. It's very likely that, that Paul left Luke, the doctor there, a Gentile doctor as well. This was a diverse church, just like it's supposed to be. There's no indication there were any Jews. In fact, the, the names that appear in the letter are either Greek or Roman. And Paul, unlike his other letters, makes very little use of the Old Testament, uh, very little use of the Old Testament because this Gentile church had very little familiarity with the Hebrew Scriptures. As I said, this was the, the second of his three missionary journeys. During his second and, and third journeys, Paul would write letters to these churches, these churches in Asia Minor that he founded during his first journey. That first letter was called Galatians. He wrote a couple letters to Thessalonica and, and a couple to Corinth, churches that he started during his second journey. Later, during his third journey, he's kind of hanging out in Corinth, and he writes a letter to Rome. We call it Romans, letting them know that he was planning to come for a visit. But he says, first I need to go back to Jerusalem and deliver a, an offering for the very poor church there. Well, once he got back to Jerusalem after his third journey, see, we're making our way through the book of Acts a, a, a whole lot faster than the first time I did it, I know. He, he, was, he, he was at the temple one day, and he was arrested by Jewish authorities. He's thrown in jail in, in Jerusalem. An assassination plot is uncovered, so they transfer him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where he spends two full years in jail. Two years. He gets kind of tired of that, and since he's a Roman citizen, he appeals his case to Caesar. They put him on a ship. After a shipwreck, he makes his way to Rome, where he spends two more years, a total of four years during this imprisonment. Four years, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. It was during this time in prison in Rome, probably about 60 to 62 AD, that he wrote his so-called prison epistles. You see, he wrote them from prison. Again, four of them, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. You see, while he was in prison in Rome, this is very interesting, he was concerned about these new churches and these new believers. So he writes to encourage them and to let them know he's okay. That's kind of different. He's in prison, and he's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about them. Well, one of those letters is to the church that is meeting in Lydia's home in Philippi. And by the way, for those of you interested, the fact that Paul wrote Philippians has been widely accepted from the earliest days of, the, uh, of church history. But, but, but how do we know that Paul was in prison in Rome? Look at a couple of verses with me. 
Philippians chapter 1, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment, okay, so he's in prison, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard. That's, that's interesting. That's a unique word. It's obvious from these verses that he's in prison, and he mentions this praetorian guard, which we know to be Caesar's special bodyguard. Think musketeers. Also, in chapter 4, he mentions specifically Caesar's household. So we derive from that that he wrote this while he was imprisoned in Rome, that imprisonment that we read about at the end of the book of Acts. Now, as we read through the book, it's obvious that he, uh, he wrote the letter to Philippi to let them know about his circumstances, but, but why else does he write? Well, well, apparently, the church in Philippi, remember they got some wealthy women in there, had sent Paul a financial gift, supporting his ministry and his stay in prison. See, it's not like today. If you're in prison, they feed you, they clothe you, they take care of you. Then you better have someone outside of prison taking care of you on the inside or you're in big trouble. The gift was delivered by a guy named Epaphroditus. He, he was from Philippi and been sent to minister to Paul. But, 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 but during his vis, visit, he got real sick, sick to the point of death. I find that interesting. Here, here's Epaphroditus doing the work of, of Christ, visiting a, an apostle who's in prison, whatever happened, all that and he gets, he gets sick to the point of death. Whatever happened to all that health, wealth, prosperity stuff? Well, those people haven't read the Bible. Third, Paul is, is preparing them for Timothy's impending visit. He said, remember Timothy, the guy who was with me when we planted the church? He's coming back for a little visit. Receive him well. Fourth, he, he, this is a thank you note. Thanks for the gift. Uh, fifth, while Philippi was an extremely healthy church, it was not without its problems. There seemed to be some disunity in the church. I know we don't know anything about that, but there seemed to be some disunity in the church, and he writes to encourage them to be humbly unified. It's in the midst of that that he, that he records, that, records that great hymn of the faith in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Chapter 4, he actually goes on to name a couple of the, well, a couple of women who were fighting. Sixth, he writes to warn them of false teachers, chapter 3. These were probably Judaizers. We'll talk more about them as we get to it. But Judaizers were this, this group of Jewish, professing Jewish Christians who were following Paul everywhere he went and said, hey, yeah, Christ is fine, but you've got to keep the law of Moses to be saved too. Paul says that's heresy, and he writes some rather strong words to warn the church in Philippi about them. Finally, seventh, the Philippians were facing opposition, per persecution, just like he had faced. So Paul writes to encourage them to stand firm in the faith. Key passage, perhaps the key verse in the book is chapter 1, verse 27, which says this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, we're not going to jump into the book today, but, but I want to take us back to my introduction. 
We, we, we just finished the life of Joseph and we're reminded that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. That while all things are not good, all things are for our good. Joseph was our case in point. He was imprisoned through no fault of his own. But his miserable circumstances led to the fulfillment of God's promises. Even Joseph recognized that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So, so we were reminded, God is at work in our lives, accomplishing his good purposes, even in the midst of pain and suffering and, and trials and, and difficulties. God is always good. So how do we face those trials? What is our attitude to be? Well, when Paul wrote Philippians, he was also in prison through no fault of his own. In fact, this wasn't the first time that he was in prison. This isn't the first time that he had suffered severely for the cause of Christ. Remember, he's already been on three missionary journeys. And during the third missionary journey, before this arrest in Jerusalem that led to four more years of imprisonment and some more beatings, he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 11, we read these words. Are they, these Judaizers, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, without, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, to include the one in Philippi. Once I was stoned, that was in Lystra. Three, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been, I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from everywhere, rivers and robbers and countrymen and Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, uh, among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You just don't have enough faith, Paul. And, uh, apart from such external things, there is the internal daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. It sounds to me like he had it worse than Joseph. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. That's got to be in this book somewhere, right? And he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 11 before his most recent four-year imprisonment. So, after all of this, what is Paul's attitude? In fact, as the Philippians faced similar opposition, how does Paul encourage them? Hmm. Oddly, one of the main themes of the letter is the word joy. Joy. The word joy or rejoice, which is the verb form of the word, it means to, to have joy, appears 15 times in this short book of four chapters. 15 times in the midst of severe hardship, joy. Consider these verses. Philippians chapter 2, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Translate, that means even if I am about to die, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. 
Yeah, I'm getting ready to bite it. But I have joy because there's nothing they can do to take the joy that's in here. I don't know what you're facing, but I know what's in here, and they can't touch it. Very familiar passage in chapter 4, verses um, 4 to 7, which is on the front of the nice new bulletin. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, just in case you didn't get it the first time, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving in prison. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God in prison, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus in prison. What's my point this morning? We've learned that God is sovereign, that God is good, that He loves us, that He's working all things together for our good. And so no matter what your circumstances of life are, we can have great joy. We don't just suck it up. We don't just buck up. We aren't down in the mouth, down on our lot. Christians, we have a loving Father who cares for us and is working our best. And at the end of the book, Paul will write these words. But I rejoice. There's that word again. You're going to get so annoyed with that word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. He's talking about that gift that Epaphroditus brought. Now, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, there's the secret, of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What's the secret? All he tells us, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There it is. <laughs> There's the verse of Philippians everyone knows. You can go buy it. You can go buy it on a coffee cup or a poster or on a t-shirt or on a, on a bumper sticker. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. I can jump tall buildings in a single bound. I can stop speeding bullets with my teeth. I can run faster than a steaming locomotive. No! That's not his point. In whatever circumstances of life you find yourself, no matter how difficult life challenges may be, you can find joyful contentment through Christ who strengthens you. That's what the verse means. Father, I pray that through our time together in this great book, that you will remind us that you are at work in our lives we can do whatever, we can face whatever you have for us with joyful contentment because of Christ who lives in me. Because for me to live is Christ. To die, that's gain. What's the worst they can do? Give us great joy, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen.